When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Hope you've had a great week. We are going to talk about an album that has its anniversary today, and with me to talk about it is Andy Green. Welcome, Andy Green. Hi. Thank you very much, Brian. How are you? I am okay. So, we're going to talk about two albums, actually. The first album, three, <laughs> technically. <laughs> All right. Well, the, one, one that came out... 20 years ago today, and that is U2's Pop, and two that we sometimes combine in our heads, at least I do, into one album, which is Human Touch and Lucky Town by Bruce Springsteen, which came out 25 years ago as of like the end of March. So it was uh, Mr. Andy Green noticed this coincidence, and it actually provides us with the opportunity to have an interesting discussion uh, about when great bands, great acts, have moments of what I would call artistic confusion. Do you think artistic confusion is the right uh, phrase, Andy? Uh, yeah, though I love pop. You know, I have a different take on it than you might. But I think in both cases, they were coming off, they were coming off huge periods of success, but musical styles were changing rapidly and they were entering a new era and they didn't quite know, of, they didn't quite know how to operate in, in that new era. And it caused some problems. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Actually, it's a very complicated and parallel story of both albums. I think, I think we'll start with out of order with pop. Yeah. Um, so pop is uh, pop came out, of course, twenty years ago. Horrifyingly, it was nineteen ninety seven. How do you feel about that? Uh, I feel somewhat weird. I mean, I recall it very vividly, so it's weird. It's twenty years. It's upsetting, and so. U2 was trying to do what, you would say, with pop? Uh, they were trying to embrace dance music to some degree and to, to, to move on from to advance Europa. I think they experimented a lot on Europa, found success with it, and they wanted to take the next step and have more like electronic sounds on an album and sort of be modern. They wanted to keep evolving and bands like The Prodigy were getting popular and Madonna was doing Ray of Light. I mean, there was sort of, this was, it was this style of music was entering, you know, like the pop field on pop radio. Right. Yes. And they were, as always, trying to be relevant. And, and Matt maybe will cue up Discotech while we talk and he'll let me know when it's ready just so we can remind ourselves where, where we were at with U2 and pop. But basically, they were trying to find a middle ground between a rock album and an electronic album. In fact, they started working on the album <laughs> without Larry Mullen there, mm -hmm. which he was greatly aggrieved to learn. So, and they were, they were working with Nellie Hooper, who was a producer who worked with uh, Massive Attack and Bjork. So, which, it, it could have been awesome. Yeah, I think the problem is that they sort of wussed out. They didn't go the whole way and do an album straight through like Discotech and Mofo and Do You Feel Loved. The first three songs 
are of the same style, essentially. Right. And then it goes right into If God Will Send His Angels, which is more classic U2. Well, it's there's a lot of problems. I think that would be the the first problem would be the sort of wussing out. Um, they they got a little scared. They got scared of diving fully into the thing, and but there was also it was more complicated than that because also the rhythm section, um, <laughs> Adam and Larry, did not want to be replaced by you know program loops. So there was this attempt to recreate the sound by playing live. And let's hear a little bit of discotech. You can reach, you can't grab it. Yeah, it's this great guitar band trying to not use the guitar as well, the central thing. Though he's playing on that, it just doesn't sound at all like bad his example, style. Bad example. I, I'm aware of that yeah, because no. of his solo on here and everything. It's an awesome no, solo. No, no, excuse me, that that, 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 that has, actually has a great guitar riff. It, it does, yeah, but no, I mean, no, no. What I meant to say was, it's it's not the ringing guitar style that he was using his whole career up, up to that point. Better, better way to say it. Yes. yes, he he was. That is definitely true. They they took away the characteristic edge sound of guitar. That is actually, I think that's actually one of his cooler guitar moments because it's genuinely funky. One of the things that they struggle with on this album is even when they do attempt to groove, and this was, I was listening to it again today, and one of the things that struck me is there are moments when they attempt to groove, and this is something the band themselves, especially Bono, has said, they don't groove right. It, It doesn't, the grooves can be very clunky and that, is a bit of a problem if you're trying to make a dance record. Right, yeah. And the backdrop of all of this was that Bono's voice was going through a very rough patch. He was smoking cigarettes. There was dryness issues. He, his voice was struggling. And they did a really big mistake. They booked the tour. So they had a stadium tour locked in that, that, that gave them a very hard deadline. Yes. When you're making the most experimental album of your career perhaps it is not super smart to have the hardest deadline in the world, which is a stadium tour booked that you have to play the music on and you just have to finish the album. They snatch the album away from you and put it out before you're done with it, basically. And The Edge says that he was doing background vocals during the mixing stage at the very end, which is unheard of. Well, it's not that unheard of, but yes, it, it is a thing that happens. Yes, uh, but but yeah, right. They were they were down to the last minute, and it is true. I mean, I've been privy, I've been fortunate enough to been privy to the final stages of uh, No Line on the Horizon, which was another album that they were kind of finishing last minute. Which is, and then sometimes they have the burst of inspiration, and they they get all the way there, and you see how you know, and and it, and U2's process is fascinating and unique. You know, I think for people who don't like them, I think one of the things that would be interesting is to learn about their process and how hard they, you know, they, they will have, now I don't want to segue all the way over to No Line on the Horizon, but it was interesting to see like when they had a song called Breathe on that record, they had two entirely different versions of it. One was about like, I think Nelson Mandela and the other version was the version that ended up on the record. And so that's how they will finish two versions of the same song and and, and, and then kind of like choose between it. That's how crazy they will get. And, and on pop, I, I think one of the things that their then manager said, Paul McGinnis, was they were just realizing the potential of digital. So they would have takes that were minutely different or, you know, like a hundred tracks bringing up and down and they, they, they got lost in it a little bit. Yeah. And they put out Discotech as the first single. 
which is similar to The Fly being the first single off Octoon Baby. You sort of lead off with your thing that's more experimental. And then they had the ace in the hole of the song one for Octoon Baby. And their ace in the hole off pop, or they thought, was staring at the sun. Yeah, staring at the sun, which maybe Matt can uh, get ready. But staring at the sun... <laughs> staring at the sun, uh, I was listening to it again. It, it has... Um, a great chorus. It's very much in a. There were the other thing that was happening at in that era was Oasis. Yes. And staring at the sun is is in its chorus kind of an Oasis chorus, and it happens to be a really good chorus. I'm not so sure. There's a couple things wrong, and this gets into some deeper issues. The arrangement isn't quite right, and this is all stuff the band yeah. acknowledges. It's not. These are not. <laughs> this is pretty much just what the band themselves would say, and they're right. The, the arrangement isn't quite right, and it's possible the verses aren't that strong either. Yeah, and the band has said that if they had one more month, just four more weeks, they could have made it great. It's possible they, they would have make it, made it worse, too, of course. Yeah, <laughs> they have a long history of overthinking stuff, but when they toured, when they toured pop, they've in the first few weeks they played Staring at the Sun the same way as the album well, what's your uh, what's your the album version of Staring at the Sun briefly yeah and yeah so well when you hear that you're like hey that's a hit single but the problem is <laughs> that's like the 10 seconds that was the hit but the it, right. it's it's also like the lyrics are, are pretty cerebral and abstract and, you know, they, they were, and the issue of the lyrics in the album is a whole separate issue because it, it, I think it was a real step forward for Bono and, and lyrically and actually it's, people have written like long essays about the struggle with God in the lyrics of pop. Yeah. But I, let's go back to the, I, the, because there's so much, there's actually a lot to talk about. The, the other thing is, and we'll jump ahead and we can go back to the actual album itself, but the the marketing and release of this album was equally fraught. And this is one of those things why it's a perfect storm, much like Human Touch and Lucky Town, because um, they chose to call it pop, first of all, which was a terrible mistake, right? Yeah, I mean, it was meant to be ironic in, in a certain way that these weren't real pop songs. Back in, back in the uh, 90s especially, uh, there really was a, a species known as rock fans. I, I guess they still exist, but rock fans did not, they heard the word pop and they were immediately suspicious. And then what do they do? They released Discotech, which by the way is one of my single yeah. favorite U2 songs. I love yeah. Discotech. Um, I think, I think it's, I think it's fantastic, but they not only released a song that is, uh, to the ears of a 1997 rock fan, very electronic. What do they do in the video? They dressed them up as the village people, <laughs> and they danced, and they had to beg Larry Mullen Jr. to put on the cop outfit. <laughs> he did not want to do it, but he did it. He has a nightstick. He has like a little nightstick thrust move that he does, and to your average rock fan, they're watching their favorite rock band like prance around like the village people to some song called Discotech. <laughs> It, which is, you know, it's it's almost like if you wanted to make a plan for sort of commercial suicide in 1987, right. that would almost be the plan. But it was the sound of a band with great confidence because the 90s have been going so well for them. Right. And Octoon Baby was a very bold move and it paid off in such huge ways. Yes. And in a way, it, the album feels inevitable because they were just they were carrying on from what had been some of the most successful moments right. of their last couple albums. And Zeropa started off as an EP, became a whole album, and a song like Numb 
was a hit of sorts. <laughs> right. I would imagine that when you have like basically the edge talking and that becomes yeah. a hit single, there is a, yeah. an air of in- invincibility. Just rising. the edge muttering. The video is just feet being rubbed in his face and it was everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So it, it so, you're sort of you're setting yourself up for a fall at that point. Yeah, but my favorite U2 is U2 that's reaching for something. It's confident U2, it's bold U2, and I love pop because of that cuz there's no fear there. There's just complete faith in what they can do and in reaching forward and they don't always hit it. There's songs like the Playboy Mansion and Miami that I detest. What you is the, the the that terrible line about OJ? Um when if, OJ is if it, OJ is not just yeah, a drink, and if Coke is a mystery and Michael Jackson history, yeah, it was. I mean, you know, again, Bono himself has said that those lines are no good. Yeah, you <laughs> like, should never put lines into your songs that refer to the pop culture of that moment. Well, I also don't even understand the OJ is a drink thing. I think he was just is, setting up a rhyme. He's saying, it, no, I think the line is if OJ is more than just a drink, more than just a drink. Yes, yeah, that's that's, a, that's no good. It, yeah, it, it's you know, but. Uh, Lyrics weren't mostly the problem, but it it, it is this, and it, it is this sort of struggling in a new era thing as well. Because as much as they were carrying on with their own electronic experiments, they were also trying to, as much as we think rock is dead now, there was this sense, and especially in the sort of European circles that they traveled in, that rock had become extremely dated and they hated grunge i mean you know for the most part especially the edge he 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 really disliked a lot of grunge and they felt that was you know and they they're not wrong about this they felt it was white conservative boring and they wanted to be modern and none of those things yeah and if you turned on the radio then in europe you would hear the prodigy you hear firestarter that was everywhere right for the prodigy were on the cover of rolling stone that yes. year yes yeah yeah so it seemed that they were being as modern as as possible but you know they keep saying now that they, they, they want to go back and fix it. And they fixed a bunch of the songs in their minds on the various compilations and on the tour even. They kept working at it. What, what in your mind is the, the most underrated song on, on pop? Gone. I think maybe, Gone is a masterpiece. Maybe, maybe Mac can queue up Gone. Um, but there are moments of, of real excellence on the album, but it, it, it does require that patience because one of the things about being like sort of a super fan of a band is having the patience to be like, okay, I'm going to listen to this song where the arrangement isn't quite right, but I know there's a great song there. And, and that's well, not everyone has that patience. Well, and I think one problem was they didn't have Daniel Lanois, they didn't have Brian Eno, they didn't have their usual filters that could really talk back to them and be like, yo, this song sucks. Like, this song <laughs> well, Miami sucks, guys. Or, or the, I kind of, yeah, I, I like Playboy Mansion. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. It's better than Miami. Yeah. And if you were that Velvet Dress is also very nice. Yes. Song. And I like Wake Up Dead Man. I, I kind of yeah. like the the second the the end run of the album where it kind of peters off into into oddness. That that's that's interesting to me. Yeah, it's sort of. Yeah, that last song, that's really weird, that Wake Up Dead Man, that's a outtake off of Zeropo that they kind of, they reworked a lot. Right. Do we, so we're going to hear a Gone for a second. Okay. 
Yeah, it's a it's a really cool groove, and no, on I, I don't stage, think so. <laughs> I, I think it's a cool groove, and on the tour it sounded great, and and on the O one tour, if you if you watch the live in Boston DVD on Elevation tour, they they destroy it. It sounds amazing. What I would say is that's a perfect example of what I was talking about. I I really like that song. Mm-hmm. I think as a record, it does not work, and I think that beat especially now yeah. is just sounds just does not work and i think it's because of it's just when you make your rhythm section do weird contortions to do a thing that they're not good at yeah. that's <laughs> that's kind of what you end up and that's that's the problem with that's the problem with like sort of flawed albums is like you have again you have to have the patience to be like Ugh, this isn't this groove isn't working but hey the lyrics are good the song is good it's just this funny thing that that's what a, a real fan does is they're willing to look past these problems or even like sort of there's this very interesting thing where you end up sort of being a producer and trying to figure out in your head like how to fix this as you listen to it you know uh-huh. yeah and and i just think about poor larry he had to go <laughs> he had to go through passengers which was their weird 95 thing with brian you know that was yes. even more experimental that he hated <laughs> then he was forced to go do this yeah, it was pushing the it was pushing the boundaries of the band, and and you know you you always think, looking back, that it was inevitable that you two would always stay together and you two would have a comeback. I mean, you know they were they were yeah. a little bit adrift after and that then record. They were, then they were forced to go on a stadium tour all over the country and the and the world where these songs are the focal point of it. Well, that's the next part of this. Is yeah, yeah it's. it's uh, there is the the pop tour which I saw. I'm sure you saw. No, I didn't I do- see oh, it. You I was didn't a little see too it. young, and I young. they didn't play Cleveland. <laughs> I mean, Andy, you kind of love U2's pop, don't you? It's possibly my favorite U2 album, and I, I know that sounds <laughs> insane. Partially is I was 15. It was the first one I bought. My introduction to U2 was watch them play Please on the VMAs. Yeah, I have no memory of this, but this it was made a real impression on you. Yeah, on it was the same year as the Puff Daddy Sting thing. See, that I remember. Yeah, well, this was right in the middle. It was the middle of the Pop Mart tour. It was a real low point for the band. Bono was like wearing a hoodie. It, it was very un 2 looking, but it just really impressed me. I think Please is the best song on the album. It was much better live. And there's something about, I like the boldness of it. I like the fact that there's no flop sweat on it. It's It's just them reaching and sort of not quite getting it. But for me, it just clicks straight through besides the two songs on it that I can't stand. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe we can hear please for a second from Matt. But, uh, you know, yeah. Pop Mart Tour is, of course, what lends the whole thing a reputation of semi-disaster because yeah. they went for a semi-ironic presentation, The Giant well, Lemon. Yeah, it's they felt the need to top Zoo TV, so what which is really d- hard. Tell, uh, tell the world about The Giant Lemon. Yeah, what they wanted was a stage that looked, that was like a pop art stage. So they had a giant... Um, they had a giant logo. They had a giant like arch on the on the stage that was like a McDonald's arch, basically. Right. They're worried about being sued. Actually, then there was a giant lemon, and during the encore break, they would ride back on this neon lemon and then get off of it. And it was supposed to just be ironic, but in a very Spinal Tap s moment, the lemon it would occasionally freeze and the doors would close and they'd have to exit through the through some through through some hatch door in the back yeah and they were trapped for a while the the getting stuck in the lemon is a classic uh rock and roll moment what was your please again it was the 
the same time the Stones were touring Bridges to Babylon, and I saw Jagger talk about it, and he was like, they booked 10 cities too many. Wow. <laughs> you know, and he was right, because there'd be shows in Tampa or something where it was a stadium of 80,000 people. And even if you draw 40,000 people, that's a lot of people. It's a half-empty stadium. looks horrible. I remember I saw it at the uh, at the Meadowlands, uh, Meadow, uh, the Giant Stadium, and, and um, first, I, I believe Fun Loving Criminals opened up. I think they did a lot of the tour. As did Rage Against the Machine did a part of the tour. See, that would have been so, so much better. So we have Russell from Florida calling in, and he agrees with Andy. He says that you 2s Pop is a very underrated album. Let's, Thank let's you, hear Russell. From Russell. Hey, Russell, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Great. Pretty good. Thanks for listening. So uh, what is your case uh, for you 2s Pop being an underrated album? Well, uh, in my opinion, I think it's got some of the best songs they've ever done. Uh, I saw the tour, I saw the show in Memphis, and uh, I thought I was blown away by it. Did they get stuck uh, in the lemon? Think, Did they get out of the lemon safely in Memphis? <laughs> didn't. Uh, I thought that was great. Okay. You know, so, uh, but I mean, like, Gone, Please, Last Night on Earth, uh, I think those are three of their best songs they've ever done, personally. And uh, I think, unfortunately, I think they fell into the uh, Billy Squire, Rock Me Tonight, uh, problem um, <laughs> with, where the, they, with the video, they you mean? Let off yeah. the video exactly. They let off. I mean, I, under, I get the whole fly, you know, Octune Baby thing. I understand that. I think Discotech's a great song, but I think the video uh, kind of did them in in terms of more of their classic rock fans. Yeah, uh, you know, the fans that lost that that loved the Joshua Tree and loved War. Uh, I think they lost a lot of them along the way, and then fact what you were saying about the vmas i i loved them doing please on the vmas and if only bono had gone more bono-esque i've yeah. always said this to my friends if bono went more bono-esque they would have moved, they would have sold another another million copies of that record yeah you mean if he had if, if his hair was long and stuff it would have been less uh no if yeah, he performed little, it right. and yeah. yeah and i mean in the first half i mean it wasn't until the end and the build-up of the song that he kind of went all but you know like you said he walked out in the hoodie and he just stood still you know for the first you know three minutes of the song before finally kind of breaking out a little bit i oh, think yeah. that if he would have gotten a little more into it in that performance it was a, i loved it i mean i'm you know i'm a super fan they're one of the few bands i would actually travel to go see so, yeah, but, uh, well, you know, Russell, it's funny when, when you said when you said that. Now I remember the performance when you talked about him standing still. Well, I actually now and, I remember it. And yeah, the host was Chris Rock, and he said Bono was dressed up as like the Unabomber. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, yeah, I mean, and Russell, before I let you go, I, I will say like when uh, in one of my cover stories when I was spending time with them they, on the on the tour behind uh, No Line on the Horizon, they they were on the 360 tour. No, no, excuse me. What was the, what was, that was it, right? Yeah, yeah. that was 360. <laughs> on the tour that I spent weeks on, I can't remember the name of. So on, on that tour, they had the remix they were doing, that moment, the head bobbing um, moment, and, and the fans really, I loved it, and they threw in a little bit of discotheque, and, mm. and the, the fans did not like it, and, and their response was, sometimes our fans are just not as groovy as we would like. So I think that's what Ooh. we ran into. So anyway, Russell, thanks so much for calling in, man. Have a great day. You too, man. Thanks, guys. All right, bye-bye. 
I agree that that pop is an underrated album because it simply because it has so many good songs on it. I just I just question whether it works as an album qua album given the problems oh. with the arrangements. But what you should do, you should is it's very easy to just reconstruct pop off the live performances and the big remixes on the singles and the 90s compilation. Well, what you should do Andy for all of us is yeah. make a playlist of this on, you know, Spotify and uh-huh. Tweet it out to everyone because I think we'd all like to see your, uh, you know, and then maybe you two can also. We know those guys. Maybe they can hire you to, to remix the album as well. Yeah, that would be cool. I think, and I think that a pop box set one day will be incredible. Uh, absolutely. Um, so let's see. I mean, you know, we we've covered the the tour underselling, which I think really knocked their confidence it off. It was just in America in a few markets. When they went to Europe and South America, it was packed. The shows were incredible. They sort of made the show great as they went, but but it was the Vegas opening night it was an absolute fiasco, and there was so much press there. It was very hard to recover off of that. Right. I mean, I enjoyed the show. I was talking about this. I enjoyed the show, but I felt like something was, was missing, maybe emotionally, and I felt... I felt, I felt I found it hard to connect to, um, and and I also remember <laughs> what I really remember from that show is this: is they played with or without you, yeah. and this couple were dancing to it very romantically, as if it was a romantic song, which is of it's course is, it is is anything it is it is any, I mean, if you could just listen to the freaking chorus, you'd know. Yeah. So that for some reason, that more than anything was what stands in my mind, uh, and that in fun love and criminal. Well, and I remember. the Edge karaoke. Do you recall that? Uh, I do recall that. And before we, we end our YouTube pop discussion and move into Human Touch and Lucky Town, let's hear from Chris, who agrees that pop is underrated. How can we debate if everyone agrees? What, uh, Chris, what do you think? Well, I, I absolutely think that pop is underrated. I, I believe that the 90s trilogy is very underrated overall. Mm. Um, if you look at those three albums and even pop specifically if you look at it for the music content itself and not that it was you two performing it you're going to hear a lot of what was influencing the guys at the time they were they were listening to a lot more you know craft work prodigy orgy you know you know that kind of electronic synth stuff and they were incorporating it into the those three albums at that time and I think every, I, I feel all the tracks are very very solid they're very they're tight they're very well put together you know the imagery may have not necessarily been a home run but <laughs> you know I think a lot of people that panned that album and and the all three of those and the, whether it be critics or fans are just like Caller Russell had said, you know, they were the ones that were expecting 80s U2. Right. Well, at at the end of the Joshua Tree, or the, the Rattle and Hum tour in 1989, Bono actually had said, they, were, they did a show in Dublin, and Bono had said to the crowd, well, it's time for us to leave and go dream it up all over again. And, and, and that's what they, was the 90s trilogy. And that's what they did. Thanks so much for calling in. Uh, have a great day. So, we're moving on to Springsteen's Human Touch and Lucky Town, which are about to have their 25th anniversaries at the end of this month. And I think I'm a little, I'm fascinated with these records. I always have been. Um, Human Touch um, was kind of like the main event in some ways that he had spent years on it. Um, he, it, it, 
it reflected a period of writer's block, as we were saying during the break. Uh, he, he had so little music going on that when Roy Bitten, he had just fired or you know let go of the E Street Band. Um, he had a new family. Everything was in flux. Then he has dinner with Roy Bitten, the former keyboardist for the E Street Band, and, and Roy plays him some demos, including this song, Roll of, Roll of the Dice. Basically, the, the backing track to it, a piano riff. And Bruce is like, this is great. Can I write to this? And I, I can only imagine how shocked Roy was, because this is just not how things had, had worked. Yeah. And the album started off there and took two years. And what Bruce didn't realize was those two years from like 90 to 92 were a major turning point in rock music and pop music in general. When he started it, it was a world of like New Kids on the Block and Paul Abdul. And when he put it out, it was a time of Pearl Jam and Nirvana. Yes, that's a big, big part of it. He made a, an, in, in some ways, Human Touch is his last 80s record. Right. It has that slickness of the 80s. It's so perfected. It's dominated by the irony was there was an interview with uh, John Landau Bruce's manager in, in Billboard when it came out and he said well you know there's a lot of guitar on this for a 90s record <laughs> and it was I mean he but from his perspective that was accurate because he was thinking about the world of top 40 yeah. and no one knows when there's this tidal wave of change coming yeah. and you know I, when I talked to Bruce last year about his book we, we talked a little bit about this period and you know and I said to him you, you know we he, he was talking about how sometimes it's just not your time. Yeah. And I, then I mentioned him, yeah, like the two tapes I had in my car were uh, Nevermind and, and Human Touch. I don't think he, he couldn't have cared less, but I did tell him that. Yeah. But, <laughs> well, and there's no memo that you get that it's like a new musical era now and everything's That's right. changed. And even <laughs> though when we look back now, we, we just think about grunge and everything. If you look at the charts, though, there was still a lot of non-grunge stuff very popular. Yeah, for sure. And he was he was an artist who had been in the 80s a chart hit maker and I think very much the thinking was that he was trying to continue that which which kind of didn't really go with where his artistic instincts were at that point but you know I mean human touch is like when you suggested the idea of pairing this with with U2's pop I think it's really interesting because like just as with U2's pop Human Touch and to a lesser extent Lucky Town are examples of some great songs kind of at least semi-ruined by the arrangements. The classic example is this song Real World from Human Touch which uh, Matt will get ready for us because that Real World is this uh, a song I always loved. He debuted it Springsteen debuted it at these the uh, famous Christic Institute concerts in 1990 as this monumental sort of solo piano soul ballad so powerful uh, very slow stripped down just him roaring at the piano and then <laughs> and then the the album comes out and we have we'll see if we have it ready but but just to build up to this a lot of people including me super fans at that point had the Christic Institute version we had we had that and because he, he played uh, 57 channels and real world okay so imagine you know this song is a raw stripped down piano vocal uh, extravaganza and this is what you hear on the record <laughs> Um, so I think we can take it from the expert, Mr. Bruce Springsteen, who said that he completely screwed up that arrangement. It was, I mean, it, it, it had, you can, it's not like you can see 
what he was going for and how it could have been cool, but it, it, it seems super forced, I think. Well, and it's the first time he'd ever recorded in the studio. It was with session musicians. It, this wasn't his band. Yeah, it wasn't his band. He, you know, he had an ad hoc band, but but it was... And, you know, the thing is, there are, there are things that, that Jeff Percaro, who... The funny thing is, so when people when he made this record, a lot of people were like, "Oh, it's the freaking Toto guys!" Like it was yeah. Jeff Porcaro who played in Toto, but Jeff Porcaro also played on like "My Gold Teeth" by Steely Dan. No, like he's a sick yeah, drummer. Like, like it's really stupid, actually. To like, of course he got him. He's an amazing drummer. And and listen, there's things he does on the song "Human Touch," which I love. I love the song "Human Touch." I don't care what anyone says. No, it's a great song. So there are things that Jeff Porcaro does on that song that. <sighs> That Max Weinberg probably couldn't do the subtleties of lifting and falling. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it he wasn't crazy for wanting to do this. It just no. it, you know. And it, but it's, there's also problems like there's a song called "Long Goodbye" on Human Touch, um, and and "Long Goodbye." I think there's something to it. I think if he had if he had if that song had been earlier in the track listing, I yeah. think maybe there's also there's and, there's and then there's also the outtakes from tracks. Yeah, which some of them are great, like Sad Eyes and everything. Those are really good songs. Yeah, I, I think again, just on like the river and stuff. Let, let's let's hear "Long Goodbye" because I think I think for me that's the underrated song. Yeah, I mean, for for me, I mean, the guitars are a little synthetic sounding, but at least it was a, a bunch of guitars. You 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 don't, you don't agree? You think that I, can't, I can't stand that song. <laughs> it sounds like shit to me. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm insane. I, yeah, I don't know. It's not good. I, it's, <laughs> see, I think a lot of this is that the other thing is you can get attached to albums that are perhaps unimpeachably bad because of your own emotional connections to exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, at a certain age, you lack critical distance. <laughs> and, then it, critical, and then yeah. you have trouble adding it back on. I can recognize no. that the other the other problem, and I, I guess you could say it for that song, but certainly for other things, is there was a certain generic quality that, 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 that crept in, right? Right, yeah. And the timing for that, it, it just couldn't have been worse. I mean, he had true writer's block. And then when he, when he got together, it was... It just didn't come together, which he kind of knew it, which is why he made Lucky Town. Yes, and that's the thing. Lucky Town has is almost uniformly great at song-wise. I think it's too restrained in the yeah. playing because he essentially took demos. See, if, if Human Touch is too polished, Human Touch, uh, Lucky Town is, is sort of um, under-polished or undercooked. Well, and he made it in just three weeks. He said that he yeah. spent three years in the first one and three weeks on, on the second one. So Lucky Town... Man, I mean, there's some great songs on Lucky Town. The, the, the title track is killer, I and, think. And yeah. so is Better Days. But I think a crucial thing to note is that, is that they sound a lot better when they're played by the E Street Band. Yes. Um, well, here we have uh, Doug, who thinks, that, uh, <laughs> who thinks that Lucky Town and Human Touch are Bruce's two worst albums, which, I, I, you know, that's not a, a total minority opinion. But tell us why, Doug. Well, I just think that... He lost his way on these two albums. They're very synth, synth-driven albums. Um, Working on a Dream is awful as well, but you guys somehow <laughs> get five stars, and I still don't know how. But, uh, you're, um, ta- you're, you're, talking, you're talking to the guy who wrote that review, by the way, so, so, so bring it on. But yes, go, go yeah, on. I, go on. <laughs> I don't understand how that got a five-star review, but uh, Fair these enough. albums are right with it. And I also, um, <laughs> I think at some point, you guys are going to have to give John Mellencamp some credit, because this guy's outstanding 
he's consistently ignored in your publication. Well, well Doug, it's, it's it's amazing. There's a lot of coincidences in the, in this in this call, but one thing is we originally were going to have John Mellencamp in person here in the studio today. He canceled at the last minute. He had a personal thing, but we're actually hoping to get him back. And and I lo- and I profiled John and Andy's profiled John, and we and we actually we're we're huge fans. But uh, but yeah, he lost his way. I, I will. And and Doug, thanks so much for calling in, and I'm glad you could confront me one on one about working on a dream. We'll talk about that sometime. Um, uh, Doug's a little angry, I think. Um, but but um, and work on a dream. We, we can discuss that at some point. But and, uh, but and the John sin- Mellencamp, I've interviewed him at least ten times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like literally. I mean, I will say that that John Mellencamp and Andy text sometimes. I that, mean, that like, is true. Like, yes. So we are, you know, <laughs> we can, we are unimpeachable about our uh, closeness with John Mellencamp. I've practically babysit his kids once, so for real. But anyway, um, the the critique of human touch is synth driven is I think valid Doug who's no longer on the phone but um, that is not valid for you know the vast majority of Lucky Town Lucky Town is essentially a stripped down guitar driven album yeah and when Bruce played them for Steve Van Zandt he did not like human touch and he heard Lucky Town then he was like that's more like it right he wanted to (laughs) re-record human touch with the E Street Band which I can only imagine Bruce's real-time reaction to that but I think we were we were saying about Lucky Town, it, right? That it sounded better. That all these songs sound better when they're played by the E Street Band. Um, with one of them, I think again the mis- the mistake or the problem with Lucky Town is he recorded demos and then brought in like I think Gary Malabar Malabar actually not pro- positive how to pr- pronounce that, but he's a former Van Morrison drummer to sort of replace the drum machine. So. And then you know some other people to kind of build around it. So when you when you do that, when you work, when you have rock songs that are built from demos, they're never going to kind of feel expansive. They're never going to really rock. You know, it's it's not a good way to make a rock album. So and I think part of it probably was it, it came in. I mean, he wrote those songs like you said in this burst of inspiration, but then maybe just kind of wanted to record it the same way, especially after like the laborious process of Human Touch. So that that may have been. A mistake. Yeah. So then he finishes them both and he goes, okay, I have two new albums here. They're a little different. I don't know what to do. And Guns N' Roses had just done Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 on the same day and had a huge hit with it. So so Sony was willing to put them both out on the same day. Right. It's a fascinating thing. I mean, the imagine you know people were supposed to go to the store and buy these two CDs. That was the thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I went at midnight. I went in, in, in <laughs> confession hour. I mean, I, I went uh, at midnight in uh, in New Jersey. Wow. Uh, and there were a lot of people there, man. There was, at, I'm the, sure. It, it, it was an event. It didn't. We didn't know that it was the, the Waterloo here. <laughs> like, we, we did not know. There, there was a sense. I, I do actually, that's not totally true, though, because... Uh, when they when the two singles came out, it, it was actually because I bought the single. It was Human Touch and <laughs> Better Days on the on the flip side of the single, and mm-hmm. they had both songs played on the radio that day. Like on th- this was an era when there was still like classic rock radio would actually kind of play the new song by the the Bruce or whoever. So they played it. And I remember the DJ being like, "I don't know about that." <laughs> <laughs> like that actually happened, and that was the first time when it's like, "Uh oh," like like maybe you know maybe maybe this isn't going to work out. Yeah, but even Tunnel of Love, I mean, it was a beloved record, but it was nowhere near the Born USA level. So there's definitely a sense that there was a downward There was move. drift. And, you know, part of it was, and then, of course, one of the things that happened with this record was Entertainment Weekly 
did those records. I, I keep talking about them as one record, but Entertainment Weekly did an infamous Whatever Happened to Bruce cover, oh. which, uh, believe me, when, when I was there and then they wanted him back on the cover for The Rising, I think there had to be like a sort of, like, well, you know, uh, you know. Sorry about that whole <laughs> sorry, thing. Sorry about the whole Whatever Happened to You thing. Can you be on our cover? And, and to his credit, he, he, did, he did agree. But, you know, again, in a, a long career, and I, I, I hope we have artists who can still have careers like this you know decades long careers part of the thing it needs ebb and flow you have to have those if not low points those sort of confused moments those dips those valleys right yeah but the key is that you have to learn from them and the response is essential if you just do it again yeah then you can be gone forever what he did next was the ghost of tom joe it was the anti-human touch in every conceivable way (laughs) and you know you made a good example uh, of in response to kind of both U2's pop and these Bruce albums, which was uh, their Satanic Majesty's Request, um, which was kind of a a classic stumble, but again, same kind of thing because there are great songs on it. Um, Yeah. But classic stumble, and then they they respond by making Jumpin' Jack Flash and and just diving back into what you do best. And what U2 did was in 98, they put out their 80s best of, they put out The Sweetest Thing as a single, and they went right back to the core audience and made a radio hit with the Joshua Tree B-side. Right. And don't forget, you, you jumped to Ghost of Tom Joe, but oh, yeah. actually what Bruce did was, was he wrote Streets the of Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah, so it was a huge and, hit. And so he, he dug into... You know, he, he, he dug into the core of his songwriting and also a, a somewhat modernized sound. Yeah, it it was like his knocking on heaven's door for Dylan when Dylan was adrift. He he got a soundtrack right. and wrote one great song for a soundtrack. He put all his energy into one song, basically, and they both managed to use that as a jumping off point for the next few years. It It is amazing. I mean, with Bruce, like, people were just, you know, and it was such a weird time to be a Bruce fan as a young person because people were like, you're, you like Bruce Springsteen? Like, it was yeah. so, even in New Jersey, it was such a weird, so then, and then two years later, he turns around and has that Oscars moment. It has this song that's everywhere that's actually a pop, and it just shows how quickly yeah. things turn around. So this has been uh, Rolling Stone Music Now. We were talking about U2's pop and Bruce Springsteen's Human Touch and Lucky Town and, and Uh, we took some calls and and we hope to do that going forward we'll be back next Friday at 1pm with the next episode of Rolling Stone Music Now and in the meantime you can download us as a podcast at rollingstone.com slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts and we will see you next week thanks so much for listening have a great weekend Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.